This is Unfilter, episode 340 for December 3rd, 2020. This morning, Moderna became the second drug company to submit its vaccine for emergency FDA approval. At nearly 95% effectiveness, it could potentially pave a new pathway for COVID relief. As vaccine efforts provide a charge of hope, urgent warnings from health officials about the dangers of traveling over the holiday proved far less potent. What we expect, unfortunately, as we go for the next couple of weeks into December, that we might see a surge superimposed upon that surge that we're already in. If you're young and you gathered, you need to be tested about five to 10 days later, but you need to assume that you're infected and not go near your grandparents and aunts and others without a mask. Prompting the question, when will Americans learn? Hello, you super spreader, you, and welcome into the People's History Podcast. This is one of those episodes where I'm not sure how I'm going to break it to you. I, I have to talk about something, and I, I don't know how a lot of you are going to be very happy with me after I address it. But, you know, as we approach Christmas, the uh, COVID monster is uh, still out there. We haven't um, solved the problem. And of course, we're being promised many solutions just around the corner. We just have to... We just have to lock down for a little bit longer. And uh, if you went and you went traveling for Thanksgiving, well, then you're really a monster, aren't you? According to uh, the news this week, the U.S. just didn't learn their lesson. You fools! They tried to warn you, and you didn't take them seriously. And now they're angry at you. and not go near your grandparents and aunts and others without a mask. We're really asking families to even mask indoors if they chose to gather during Thanksgiving and others went across the country or even into the next state. They're going to put it to super suspenseful music if that's what it takes to try to get you, you dumb American. If you would just mask up more, we wouldn't have this virus. Now you need to mask up inside. With your paper mask. You know, I've been thinking about what, what drives me so crazy about the whole mask up, mask up, mask up messaging. And it dawned on me today. It, and it is one of the things, one of a few things that I want to share with you today. The, the mask up statement is really a theoretical construct. Because what they're saying is they're telling every American to properly apply a mask to put it over their dumb, stupid noses, to maybe even potentially get it over their beard, like in my case, I have a beard that some of the paper masks don't even really create much of a seal. And they're, and they're asking the public to do something that they literally train health professionals to do. So that's what struck me today when I realized there's actually courses for nurses that teach them how to, uh, how to uh, put on all kinds of medical gear, including face masks, because if it's not done right, they're not effective. Or if your dumb nose is hanging out, or if you're like me and you got a beard, you're, you're just not simply as effective. Or, or, or if it's, you know, pantyhose that you're wearing over your mouth, pretending like it's a mask. 
So it's a it's a theoretical construct that implies that everybody would do it correctly in some sort of uniform way, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And then when the cases go up and the infections go up and the hospitalizations go up, well, then it's just you weren't masking enough. And there's never any actual measurement. There's there's really no way. It's a very vague definition of masking up and it's very vague how many people are actually doing it. So they can just keep saying you didn't mask up enough. You traveled and you didn't mask up enough. So now you need to mask up when you're at home. And go get tested. Go get tested if you if you need to, because, boy, are people doing that. This is Gabe Gutierrez from Los Angeles to Chicago to Dallas. The COVID testing lines this week have been growing. I mean, we were seeing about maybe 150, 200 people a day. Um, now we're seeing upwards and topping in over 500 right now. What they're letting you kind of put together is that, you know, people are getting sick and they need to come get tested. But what's really happening is people are just getting scared shitless by the nonstop fear porn by the media and now the Biden administration. And and they're going to get tested even when they have really no reason to do so, which overloads the system and then makes it harder to actually turn around test results for places like North Dakota, which are getting slammed. 114 Americans are testing positive every minute in New York City. A pre-Thanksgiving rush gave way to a steady stream today. I think it's important to get tested, uh, even if you aren't showing symptoms. That right there. This isn't an STD, okay? This is that, that while, while would be great if you could get the tests at home, but when we're doing mail-off PCR screening, that just simply overloads an ancient system that was from like the 1800s. You're, this guy, by the way, he's probably, I would guess, 21, 22 years old, college kid, Totally 100% healthy, fit, probably not all of that risk at the coronavirus. But you know what? You got to go get tested even if you don't feel anything because fuck nurses, right? 18 Americans are testing positive every minute in New York City. A pre-Thanksgiving rush gave way to a steady stream today. I think it's important to get tested uh, even if you aren't showing symptoms. Still, the country's largest nursing union says a survey of 15,000 nurses shows two-thirds have never been tested. This despite major sports leagues conducting thousands of COVID tests a week for their athletes. And that's, that is just a scapegoat. It's politicians. It's Joe Rogan. If you go to Joe Rogan to do his podcast, you get an, you get a test and they have results within 15 minutes. If you want to go visit Don in the White House, you get a 15 minute test. If you want to go to fancy high end parties in Hollywood, you get a test at the door. People have access to these. It's just the ones that are available to us peebs are slow, inaccurate, and being completely taken up by douchebags like that college boy. It is absolutely outrageous that national sports stars are getting routinely tested when nurses aren't. Nurses are your line of defense. They're your only line of defense. At Texas A&M University, researchers are working on a COVID-19 breathalyzer. In less than a minute, results could potentially be sent to someone's smartphone, though it still would require emergency use authorization from the FDA. Nine months into the pandemic, some states are still reporting a testing backlog as labs are overwhelmed. In North Dakota, results are taking five to seven days. What's the point? By the time you notice symptoms, you get tested... Five to seven days, it's it's just really kind of pointless. It's ineffective. And then we get these positive results, but they're already past peak infectious stage. And then we do the contact tracing. That's still taking another week to two weeks if they do it at all. 
but at least that totally healthy kid is getting a PCR test. And then in five to seven days, oh, plus you got to get a, so, and then probably add another two to three days to get a hold of the kid, right? So, you know, in, in about a week and a half, you'll know he's either negative or positive. Well, whoop de do Big deal. It's, and uh, it's really remarkable. And they're making ginormous economic and humanitarian policy about lockdowns and businesses around this ridiculous system. But hey, at least the first doses of uh, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine are on the move. Tonight, the first doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine are on the move. A source familiar with the planning tells NBC News that United Airlines has already flown its first chartered cargo flight to the U.S. from Brussels to Chicago. That's got to be a pretty cool flight, right? (laughs) With a vaccine on board. It'll be distributed if and when the vaccine is approved by regulators. United won't confirm details, but says it will support a vaccine distribution effort on a global scale. The FAA says it's supporting the first mass air shipment of a vaccine. A source familiar with the process tells NBC News the agency is allowing United to carry 15,000 pounds of dry ice per flight, five times more than usually permitted to keep the doses cold. For frontline workers across the country, it can't come soon enough. Yeah, so they'll probably be some of the folks that get the vaccine first. Um, And so I want to have a I want to have an opportunity to have a frank conversation with you here on the show. We haven't talked a lot about the vaccine in the terms that I'm about to. And this is why I say it's going to be one of the things I'm going to talk about today that I I think is going to upset some of you. Um, And I want to make it clear. I'm not um, an anti-vaxxer. I've been vaccinated myself. I like everything. And I know this is a ridiculous concept for people to wrap their heads around. But I like everything. Measure everything independently on its own, on its own merits. That's how I work. In fact, I think subscribing to an ideology about any one particular category of thing is intellectually dishonest. And I think you are maybe taking the lazy way out when you do that. I think everything should be considered on its own merits. And I want to have a conversation about the, about the COVID vaccine that you know is going to be rammed down our throats. Maybe for better or for worse, it's going to be at a scale we've never seen for a vaccine. And it may be that this vaccine, as it's being teased right now, truly ends up being the key that unlocks regular life. Maybe, because that's what we're being promised right now. I captured some audio. I have the entire debate linked in the show notes. It's a debate about herd immunity and diff- and the, the effect of lockdowns and, of course, uh, the cases and rates. And it's, 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 um, it's a high-caliber debate. It's like the old-school debate where two scientists could have different opinions and have a rational conversation with each other about their different opinions. Remember when we used to be able to do that? That's what this debate is. And so there were some good audio opportunities. I'll play a little bit of the introduction so you have the credentials here. You know who we're working with. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Dr. Bachner. Once again, it is Howard Bachner, Editor-in-Chief of JAMA. And um, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by two remarkable individuals uh, today. Uh, Mark Mark Lipsit is a professor of epidemiology, very prominent nationally and internationally, uh, an epidemiologist. He's a professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.C. Chan School of Public Health. 
Welcome, Mark. Mark's been on before, and I appreciate him coming on again. Uh, the you. other individual on today uh, is Jay Bhattacharya. Now, this is who we're going to be hearing from a little bit. Jay Bhattacharya. Uh, Jay's a senior fellow uh, at the Freeman's Bogley Institute for International Studies, and he's a professor of medicine at Stanford. And we're here to discuss what has emerged as probably one of the most fascinating yet challenging discussions in modern infectious disease epidemiology in the last 20 or 30 years. So you get an idea of the tone <laughs> of this conversation, but honestly, in some ways, that's kind of appealing, right? And I will have the entire source linked in the show notes. But I, I am feeling like I have to be the bearer of bad news for you. I don't think the vaccine's going to change pretty much anything. I'm not so sure it really is the key to unlocking regular life. The reality is we could be making those changes now. For those of us under 70 years old, COVID has a 99.95 survival rate. That's the most current data. I'll let the professor explain. This is an absolutely deadly disease for people who are older and for people who have certain chronic conditions. Right. Uh, the, infectious, uh, the, the uh, infection survival uh, rate from seroprevalence data, you know, now 50-some high-quality seroprevalence studies says that there's a 95% survival rate for people who are 70 and older. For people under 70, it's 99.95% survival. It's much less deadly uh, for people who are under 70, 99.95. Um, and for children, it's, it's frankly, the flu is worse. Like it, it's more, we've had more flu deaths among children than the, this year than COVID deaths, uh, just in terms of mortality. And I don't think we should be underplaying the flu. The flu sucks. It's a bastard. When my, when my kids first started going to school, I got the flu all the time. And people can have long-term neurological effects from the flu. They can get feverish. That can damage their brain. There is actual problems with the damn flu. And maybe, maybe we are just kind of figuring it out, but we're overreacting because the reality is you heard the numbers right there. 95% chance of survival if you're older than 70 years old. If you're under the age of 70, 99.95%. That's remarkable. 99, 99%. So what are we really, what are we upending all, everyone's life for? Well, of course, because we have to save lives. We have to save lives. We have to do these draconic measures that are a broad brush of the entire world to save the most vulnerable, but the vaccine's going to save us. But here's what I say to you. I don't think this is the hope that you all think it's going to be because <laughs> the problem is there are legitimate reasons to avoid the vaccine. And CBS actually did a little bit of homework and pressured Bill Gates on this very issue. Listen to this audio and then let's talk on the other end. Moderna vaccines sound concerning. We looked. After the second dose, at least 80% of participants experienced a systemic side effect. 80% ranging from severe chills to fevers. So are these vaccines safe? Well, the uh, the FDA not being pressured will look hard at that. The FDA is the gold standard of regulators uh, and their current guidance on this. If they stick with that is is very, very appropriate. Uh, and 
you know, the, it, the, 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 the side effects were not super severe. That is, it didn't cause permanent health problems for, uh, the things there. They, you know, Moderna did have to go with a fairly high dose. And so, uh, you know, to get the antibodies, some of the other vaccines, uh, are going able to go with lower doses to get, uh, responses that are, are pretty high, including the, the J&J and the Pfizer. And so there's a lot of characteristics of these vaccines. Um, it's great that we have multiple of them uh, that but are Bill, going out there. And, and yes, I you, think you know the data the better than I do. But the bill, Bill, the, the data showed that everybody with a high dose had a, a side effect. Yeah, but some of that is is not dramatic where, you know, it's just you know, super painful. But yes, there we need to make sure there's not severe side effects. The FDA, uh, I, I, I think will do a good job of that, uh, despite the pressure. So you got to go in twice. When you go in, if you get a high dosage, there's an eighty percent chance. Or if actually, she said the second time, everyone who got a high dosage has had side effects. And then when Bill Gates tries to minimize it. When he tries to downplay those side effects, he says, oh, no, no, it's not that bad. It's just super painful. Bill, the, the data showed that everybody with a high dose had a, a side effect. Yeah, but some of that is, is not dramatic where, you know, it's just, you know, super painful. But yes, there we, it's just super painful, not dramatic where, you know, it's just, you know, super painful. But it's <laughs> just unbelievable. It's unbelievable right there. And here I, I can I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say the vaccine has absolutely no purpose. Frontline workers, obviously vulnerable people, obviously. But then they if they're vulnerable and the vaccine does have this level of side effects, if it does essentially make you sick, you have to worry that maybe the people that are that vulnerable couldn't survive the side effects either. Now, this happening as several companies race to get a vaccine approved, but early trials show you may need to prepare for side effects. Liza Lucas joins us from the bridge. And Liza, these side effects are expected to be mild, but could really impact your daily life. Yes, it depends on how you react and how you take that feeling of feeling crummy, because that is what the early data is suggesting, that several of these vaccines may make you feel crummy for a couple of days. And then you got to go and get that second dose. Pfizer is like likely most others will require two doses to work. The injections must be given weeks apart, according to company protocols. Now, scientists anticipate that the shots will cause you to feel drained, perhaps flu-like side effects, including sore arms, muscle aches, and fever. The effects could last days and temporarily sideline some people from work or school. Experts believe broad outreach on the vaccine is going to be necessary. And in fact, we've been monitoring how people would feel when it comes to taking that vaccine. The willingness, willingness rather, to be vaccinated for COVID-19. A recent Gallup poll showed only half of Americans were ready to take it. Half, not so much. Yeah, this is what I'm concerned about. You could argue that taking the vaccine is someone's patriotic duty because you can, you help, you help herd immunity, you help stop the spread of a virus that can kill some people. So you could argue there's all of these altruistic reasons to take the vaccine, and you'd be absolutely right. I don't know if the individual consumer, when they do the math, is going to come out on the, on the end of deciding to take this thing. Because looking at it, they're going to say, well, this is a rushed vaccine, even though, you know, the gold standard, the FDA has said it's OK. It has a 95 percent chance of defending me from a virus that I have a 99 percent chance of beating. 
It's a vaccine that has a significant chance of giving me flu-like side effects that can last days and that are super painful at the injection site. Oh, oh, and I need two of them. So maybe I even get sick twice. Why would I not just take my chances with the virus? If I, if I get sick, I self-isolate. I have a 40% chance of being asymptomatic and not even knowing I'm sick. And then I have my own antibodies at the end of the whole thing. And it would all be very easy and possible if I had a way to test myself at home that I've been talking about now for three and a half, four months. Oh, I'm sick. Oh, I didn't even know I'm sick. Ha <laughs> ha. I must have got the Rona and I'm, I'm asymptomatic. I'll stay home for a week. Oh, now I've got the antibodies. I really think that's the math people do only without that bit where they they'll just run the risk of being asymptomatic and spreadable. You've got a better shot with the coronavirus if you're under the age of 70 than you do with the vaccine. Now, of course, if you're if 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 you feel like it would be something that you want to do, if it's something that think you think makes you safer, if you're somebody who is at risk and should get something like the vaccine, of course, of course. But I'm telling you, when you look at the general population, I mean, look at the folks that are already at, you know, they're not wearing masks. They're not really worried about any of this. They're going to do this math. They're going to say, well, I'll take my chances with the flu. Better or wrong or right. That's what they're going to say. Because you look at these side effects, you know, super painful, sick for several days. That's just as bad as the coronavirus. And, and I think what frustrates me so much is our short-term thinking right now about all of this. Because regardless, I mean, it's gonna, the vax is coming. It'll help the people that uh, are probably the most appropriate for it to help immediately. And then it's going to be the long tail, really, which is what I'm talking about here, the general population. But there will be so much public campaigning. There'll be so much public campaigning. When the, when the fundamental math is right here, and it's obvious for all of us to see, but once that pressure starts laying in, once all of that propaganda begins spinning up, this basic concept of the obvious math of this thing that most people will do is going to be heresy. It's going to be ridiculous. Truth sometimes becomes the most outrageous thing that can possibly be spoken or written. And no matter what we do, in the meantime, we are completely fucking ourselves with these lockdowns, which have catastrophic effects. I go back to the professor of medicine from Stanford on his thoughts on lockdowns. Uh, third, third premise is that lockdowns have absolutely catastrophic effects on physical and mental health of populations, both domestically and internationally. Uh, that uh, I'll, I'll talk about that. I think uh, coming forward, you know, going forward, but uh, that that that's that really sort of you know, plays a big role in the thinking about the Great Barrington Declaration. So that for people who are under seventy, for under under say, say sixty or fifty, uh, that the lockdown harms are again mentally and physically are worse than COVID. And then um, third, and then finally, I'm going to play that part again because I think it's true because you're destroying families, you're devastating generational wealth, and you're enabling substance abuse and child abuse. And it's a dark, dark thing. It sucks. It sucks that that's the reality of humans. It again, in the theoretical model, this wouldn't be happening in the theoretical model that lifelong politicians that are sitting in fancy mansions 
and then go down to halls filled with marble to declare their decisions, to these rich, elite bastards, the theoretical model is quite straightforward. You reduce the amount of people out spreading around, you reduce the virus, you buy us more time for the vaccine, you take the load off the hospitals. It's obvious. But that's a theoretical model. The reality is, it turns out, the home is one of the highest spreaders of the virus. It turns out, indoors is the most dangerous and the most appealing environment to the virus, especially now. And it turns out that when you lock people in the homes with their families that they're often all day at work at or try to avoid at bars, when you lock them home, They drink at home, and they fight, and they turn into shitheads. It turns out a lot of people are just not that great at being humans. And that's the reality. And the lockdowns, they don't account for that. Physically are worse than COVID. And then um, then finally, the vaccine's coming no matter what we do. Whether we adopt more lockdowns like Europe has, or we uh, do a focused protection plan like the Great Barrington Declaration says, The vaccine is coming and it will help no matter what, when it comes, right? His alternative is essentially a focused protection plan to set up public policy around protecting the most vulnerable. And something that I realized about a month into the lockdown based on the emails that started coming into the show is people's home situations are really bad and child abuse and many other negative factors are accelerated during these lockdowns. I mean, the the key thing is is context. because you're right, this is a deadly pandemic, and it, there's no good outcome from it. There's only minimizing harm and death uh, in, in, by choosing policies wisely. Let me let me document some of the harms of the lockdowns that Mark has, as I've advocated for uh, all the way through the epidemic. Um, in in uh, among young children, the ch- child abuse has is skyrocketed. Um, often, it's picked up in schools. Our schools have been closed, and so it doesn't get picked up there. Uh, there's domestic abuse that's happened. The CDC estimated in June that one in four young adults seriously considered suicide. One in four. Uh, you know, normally it's something that's on the order of four percent is now one in four. Uh, the school closures have led to vast uh, harm in terms of inequality. Right. So there's going to be uh, kids. Uh, you know, this is probably the single biggest generator of inequality since segregation. This the lockdowns that we of the schools and, and society more generally. Uh, physical health cancer screening has been eight was at an eighty percent drop. I think you all just published a, a report about that in colonoscopy and uh, mm-hmm. mammograms. There's going to be more stage four breast cancers and colon cancers than we've seen in a very long time. Cancer we actually made a lot of progress against uh, in, in, in past few years. That's about to be reversed if it not already is. Um, cardiac procedures, a drop in angioplasty, a very, very sharp drop. Uh, uh, people stayed home. They're more afraid of COVID than, than, getting, you know, than, than getting treated for heart attacks. Uh, I lost a family member in that very situation this year. That's, that's happened already with the lockdowns. Um, these are not, uh, it, more internationally, the UN estimated in April that 130 million people are on the brink of starvation or potentially at risk of starvation because of the economic dislocation and harm caused by the lockdowns. Um, Mark said that, look, the viral transmission destroys the economy. That's, I, I hear that and I hear something like we, uh, in the Vietnam War, we have to destroy the village to save it. Uh, that's not right. You, you, the economy uh, responds to the 
policies we pick, if we tell all our businesses to close, our schools to close, the economy will be harmed. The, the economy rebounded when we lifted up some of those restrictions. David Nabarro, the uh, from the World Health from the World Health Organization, not the Heath Bar Organization, but David Nabarro said, "I want to say it again: we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control of the virus." We may well have a doubling of world poverty by early next year. We may well have at least a doubling of child malnutrition because children are not getting the meals at school and their parents and poor families are not able to afford it. This is terrible, a ghastly global catastrophe, actually. And we and so we really do appeal to all world leaders. This is the WHO I am reading to you word for word. <clears throat> Stop using lockdowns as your primary control method. Develop better systems for doing it. Work together and learn from each other. But remember, lockdowns just have one consequence that you must never, ever belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. Now, I, I, I'm not sure how the playbook works anymore, but I thought everything the WHO said the Democrats were taking as gospel. They were following the science. Well, the, the lead health organization of the world that you follow just came out, well, it's actually a while ago, and said, stop the lockdowns. Uh, in the third quarter, right? Uh, now, we talk about the economy as if it were just uh, dollars, but it's not. I've documented, I think, already all of the devastating physical and mental harms that are caused by lockdowns both nationally and internationally. Uh, hundreds of millions of people thrown into poverty worldwide. Uh, if you're sitting at $2 a day of income and you have a GDP hit of uh, you know 20% and 10% or whatever whatever the number turns out to be, you're gonna starve because you know, it's, it's a disproportionate hit. It's an incredibly unequal, unfair, immoral policy that we've adopted. Uh, and uh, to say that we can't uh, protect our, 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 our vulnerable, I think that's just a failure of imagination. Logistically, it's not impossible. It's difficult, but we have to put our minds to it. I think reducing community transmission has become a crutch that's prevented us from prevent putting our minds to it in appropriate ways. Um, so, so like you, uh, you know, Mark mentions voluntary restrictions in Sweden. Look, I think those voluntary restrictions make sense. Those are, those are not restrictions. Those are guidance to people. You tell them honestly what the risk, risks are. So for instance, I think a major public health message that we failed at is describing the risk, uh, the age, age grading and the risk. Older people think they're at lower risk than they actually are. And younger people think that they're at higher risk than they actually are. I think that's an enormous public health mistake. Um, I think there's a lot we can do to, to, to correct that. And Sweden is a good example. Uh, let me do some counterexamples, right? Germany and Argentina and Spain have had lockdowns. The UK is about to go back into one. And yet community transmission has exploded. I, I don't think the lockdown... Once the happened. lockdown was off, not while the lockdown was on. Yeah, so I mean, I think... so. But then, then, then we just keep the lockdown on for how long? I, mean, I think Argentina's had a continuous lockdown, actually, and the, and the cases have exploded. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think the lockdowns have a very good record here uh, at actually reducing the, the spread. What the lockdowns do is they, they, they delay, the, the if they do anything, is they delay when the, when the cases occur. They don't actually eradicate the disease, they don't eliminate the disease. And while they're in, they cause absolutely catastrophic harms to people who are at relatively low risk for the disease. Yes. Jay. Yep. 
And um, the people that are putting these lockdowns in place keep getting caught over and over again in hypocritical situations. Last week, I made a stink about Gavin Newsom going out to an extremely fancy high-end restaurant during lockdowns and not social distancing and not wearing masks. I shit you not. The next day, San Francisco's mayor went to the same restaurant and got caught all over again. They do it over and over again because they're, they are so accustomed to a lifestyle of unaccountability. Nobody ever calls them out on this stuff. They never get caught, especially these ones at the mayor, mayor level and the governor level. They really uh, they get to live a life of uh, probably quite a bit of luxury compared to what I live and maybe a lot of you. But they don't have the accountability that some of the higher end public officials do. And so they just are used to getting away with everything. And remarkably, in what appears to be a pretty dramatic shift, maybe because of the Project Veritas leaks that just came out, CNN has covered this. This is a CNN piece. My my jaw dropped when I saw this about the Democrats who have gone against their own COVID-19 guidance. And isn't this cute? You got the Republicans that get COVID-19, and then you got the Democrats who are hypocrites about lockdown. Isn't that just a kumbaya? A number of Democratic leaders apologizing or reversing course after multiple occurrences of do as I say, not as I do. They have been caught not following their own coronavirus guidelines. In San Francisco, Mayor London Breed facing backlash after it was revealed that she attended a birthday party last month at the French Laundry, the famed and exclusive Napa Valley restaurant, with seven other people at her table. The mayor's office says it was an open-air table, which seems like semantics since it was a partially enclosed room complete with a ceiling and chandelier, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. And when this party happened, such gatherings were discouraged by statewide guidelines, even if indoor dining was permitted in Napa County. The mayor had traveled to the dinner outside of her own city, which was on the verge of entering its red tier, the second most restrictive for the state. So she's participating in policies that shut down businesses and define zones of where people are the most at risk. And then she's traveling between those zones. going to a dinner party with people from other bubbles and it is it's outdoor just like it's the same spot where gavin went it's outdoor in the sense that there is part of a wall missing on one of the four walls it is however an arch it's 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 not big right it's 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 not outdoor seating it's absolutely not there may be a bit of a breeze from time to time in that nice warm california air and yesterday breed warned that san francisco may close all outdoor dining because the restrictions have not been working we have to continue to do our part um to distance ourselves from one another except for me of course and to limit our our activities we are in trouble except for me of course And we are sounding the alarm, as I said before. So that's going to mean some real challenging months ahead. Except for me, of course, because none of it will be hard or challenging for her. And if she hadn't just been caught red-handed like Gavin Newsom was, she'd still be doing this shit, too. 
Now, the restaurant has been quite the draw for Democratic officials define the spirit, if not the letter, of the very regulations they're telling their constituents to follow. The day before Breed's dinner at the French Laundry, Governor Gavin Newsom also attended a party there with at least a dozen other people from different households. He later apologized for it. The spirit of what I'm preaching all the time uh, was contradicted, and I got to own that. And so I want to apologize to you uh, because I need to preach and practice, not just preach. In Los Angeles County, Supervisor Sheila Kuehl voted to close outdoor dining last week and then dined at a restaurant before the order took effect. While explaining her vote, she said that it's magical thinking to say that people can wear masks and distance at a restaurant. I would say call it a theoretical construct because magical thinking is very dismissive. But a theoretical construct explains, oh, I could see how people could visualize such an existence to be true and then act based on that visualization. But that's not actually reality. It's a theoretical construct. Magical thinking works, too. That it's magical thinking to say that people can wear masks and distance at a restaurant. Kuehl's office says she felt sorry for the restaurant business's struggles and vowed that she would not dine out again until the county permits it. And in San Jose, California, Mayor Sam Licardo is also apologizing for ignoring state restrictions during Thanksgiving when he attended a gathering with his elderly parents that included guests from five different households. California limits households at private gatherings to three. Before his large Thanksgiving dinner, Mayor Licardo had tweeted this guidance, quote, cancel the big gatherings this year and focus on keeping each other safe. In Denver, Mayor Michael Hancock told residents of his city to skip large Thanksgiving dinners, quote, stay home and stay in touch with friends, family by phone or online. He sent that tweet and then he promptly appeared at the Denver airport and flew to Mississippi to spend the holiday with his wife and daughter. Oh, super spreader. The mayor's office confirming his travels and Hancock later releasing a statement asking his city for forgiveness. He said this quote, I apologize to the residents of Denver who see my decision as conflicting with the guidance to stay at home for all but essential travel. I made my decision as a husband and father, and for those who are angry and disappointed, I humbly ask you to forgive decisions that are born of my heart and not my head. This is uh, the the Democratic mayor of Denver. This is this is clever. I mean, you know, go for the heart appeal. I know I'm a hypocrite, but I really wanted to, you know. That's the thing, guys. It's my family. You know, it's family. So really wanted to. And disappointed, I humbly ask you to forgive decisions that are born of my heart and not my head. Now, he apologized to the residents who saw his decision as conflicting with guidance. But to be clear, this isn't a matter of interpretation. He did the exact opposite of what he told everyone else to do. And in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo last week told a local radio host that his Thanksgiving would include his 89-year-old mother. My mom is going to come up and two of my uh, girls is the current plan. But the plans change. Then in the very same interview, Cuomo told New Yorkers that this couldn't be a typical Thanksgiving for them, that they shouldn't have friends and family gathering. Yeah, just not for him. I'm trying to say to people now, you know, you watch all these commercials on TV. You fools. You, you fools. And they're selling commercial Thanksgiving. Right? And you fat American suckers, you just eat it up. On TV. And they're selling commercial Thanksgiving, right? 
20 people around the table, pass me the wine, pass me this. Norman That's Rockwell. not happening. That can't yeah. happen. It can't happen. Now, the backlash was quick. Cuomo suddenly changed his plans. One of the governor's advisors telling CNN that the next day, Cuomo would now be working on the holiday. The past few weeks brought into relief a pattern of leaders failing to lead by example, asking Americans to make sacrifices that they themselves are unwilling to make and appearing sorry only when they're caught. Trust is built slowly, but it evaporates faster than reservations at a fancy restaurant. A lot of these leaders, they are looking across the aisle to blame Republicans who aren't taking mask wearing seriously. But maybe it's time they also look in the mirror and ask themselves if that amuse-bouche was really worth it. I mean, oh my God. Oh my gosh, it's Anderson Cooper, everybody. I, it, I have not seen anything that great from CNN, aside from the Wolf Blitzer Nancy Pelosi interview since 2016. I wonder if when Trump just shuts up and they've got nothing to talk about, if this is what they end up having to do to fill airtime. Or could it be that they are attempting to regain some kind of credibility now that the balance of power is shifting and they need to be perhaps more to the center of MSNBC? Either way, I'm going to keep my eye on that trend. I'd like to see more of that. She got them. She even called them on the on on some of the like, you know, uh political BS stuff. Like that's remarkable. And then and then they're like really like I don't know what is going on. I mean, cuz then then CNN comes in with some extremely um well, it's the latest breaking news I've ever seen. This is CNN Breaking News. We have some breaking news for you in our world lead. CNN has obtained leaked documents from inside China, documents that reveal the missteps and the chaos of the Chinese government's early response to the coronavirus pandemic. The documents are from Hubei province, home to the city of Wuhan, where the pandemic is thought to have started. They show authorities released misleading public data on the number of deaths and the number of cases. They took, on average, three weeks to diagnose a new case and much more. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is breaking the story for us. Right now. Now, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> isn't, all, isn't all this the stuff that when Trump said it, you called him a xenophobe and that he was trying to shift the blame? And I always remember thinking during these kinds of events, too, it's like, well, he is the president of the country. Perhaps he has intelligence that gives him reports on stuff. And he knows about things before CNN's Jake Tapper does, you know, but they would always just jump to, oh, he's such a xenophobe. Of course, it's not a China virus. And then you had you had Cuman saying, oh, it's the Europe virus. It's the Europe virus. No, no. No, you see, I actually have some documents in the show notes. There's some pretty good data that it was in my home state in early December. And likely even late November. So this time right now that I am recording, coronavirus was spreading in my state right now, a year ago to the day. And we didn't even know it. We didn't know it was coming because China sat on their ass and they tried to protect themselves. And it was obvious. And now, here we are, all of a sudden, CNN's breaking this news from January. An unprecedented leak of internal Chinese documents to CNN reveals for the first time what China knew in the opening weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, but did not tell the world. 
A whistleblower who said they worked inside the Chinese healthcare system share the documents with CNN Online, which show a chaotic local response from the start. This lack of transparency uh, sort of also contributed to the crisis. Seeing information uh, in black and white uh, was very revealing and instructive. CNN has verified them with half a dozen experts, a European security official, and using complex digital forensic analysis looking at their source code. Look at them. They put some work into, into it. Like, uh, what do they call that? Um, journalist. Journal journalism. Journal investigative. Investigative journalism. That's what it is. The documents provide a number of key revelations about the province of Hubei, home to the epicenter city of Wuhan. Firstly, some of the death tolls were off. The worst day in these reports is February the 17th, where these say 196 people who were confirmed cases died. But that day, they only announced 93. Now, the reason why some of this matters is Wuhan and other cities in China were pointed to by the West and the World Health Organization when they were initially advocating lockdowns, saying, look at the data. This is when China instituted a lockdown, and then look at the rates. They just flatline right here. Well, it turns out the data was fake. Surprise, surprise. China was also circulating internally bigger, more detailed totals for new cases in Hubei. For one day in February, recording internally nearly 6,000 new cases. Some diagnosed by tests, others clinically by doctors, and some suspected because of symptoms and contacts. But all you know, it's got to be more than that too, right? The suspected ones. And they'd say, oh, 100. And so we on the West would lap it up. Oh, oh, look at that. They've solved it. And... We'd pray, you know, the nice thing about the China regime is when they need to institute a lockdown, it, the Iron Gate goes down and everybody goes into lockdown and they really got this thing under control. They were praising the Chinese communist government for their effective lockdown strategy because of this, these numbers. If you don't remember this, it's, it's got to be like right either around when the show started. So it may be in some of our earliest clips when the show came back. Or it was just in that window of time before the show launched. And I was watching all of this and I was losing my mind. But now to have, can you imagine the difference this could have made if CNN and a couple of other organizations would have done this work back in January or March or April. Imagine the difference it could have made to the lockdown policymakers. I mean, all of it. It could have shifted things. It could have shifted a lot of things if they would have done their job. It's hard to say, but it's possible. For one day in February, recording internally nearly 6,000 new cases, some diagnosed by tests, others clinically by doctors and some suspected because of symptoms and contacts, but all pretty serious. Yet publicly that day, China reported nationwide about 2,500 new confirmed cases. The rest were downplayed in an ongoing tally of suspected cases. That meant patients that doctors had diagnosed as being seriously ill sounded like they were in doubt. They did later improve the criteria. If China had been more uh, transparent and also more uh, aggressive in responding, clearly they would have had an impact on the, how much the virus spread in Wuhan, in Hubei, in China and perhaps uh, to the rest of the world as well. If someone doesn't blame Donald Trump in this clip, I'm going to get dizzy. This is just not, I'm not used to this. <sighs> Strikingly, the documents reveal one possible reason behind the discrepancy in the numbers. 
A report from early March says it took a staggering 23 days on average from when someone showed COVID-19 symptoms to when they got a confirmed diagnosis. That's three weeks to officially catch each case. This information seems to be very surprising to me because normally <laughs> it would take uh, you know just a couple of days. Oh my goodness. Well, there you go, CNN. They did some work this week, didn't they? Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So the ultimate result, and it's funny because you can really see how people think about this. Some people say, well, the pandemic has caused all these job losses. And you'll see the media report has the, has the pandemic has caused the food lines to be record lengths and how all of this is because of the pandemic that we've shut down small businesses, but we've left Walmart and fast food restaurants open. It's because of the pandemic. But really, it's policymakers' decisions. And at the very top, some of the absolute worst policy leadership is squarely on the shoulders of Pelosi, McConnell, Schumer, and now Joe Biden and his team. Their failure to come to some sort of deal on stimulus has put pain and pressure on a lot of the middle class and people in the country. To the point where there's actually some humanity in the lower decks who realizes their leadership is doing shit nothing. And see, they both have a great little strategy here. McConnell thinks, you know, things are going to look pretty good. They're going to have a pretty good position of power by January and doesn't really serve him that much to help Joe Biden's economy, does it? But what is McConnell's ultimate goal? His ultimate goal is to keep their lock on the judiciary. His ultimate goal is to keep their long play for the courts alive and not to allow the Democrats to pack the courts. And that's really what he's concerned about. And if he can maybe slow down Joe's economy a little bit, he's okay if the people have to suffer. And Nancy, Nancy feels like she can sit back and let the actual suffering of the people apply enough pressure to pass their HEROES Act, which was $2.5 trillion in spending that now includes a bunch of spending for things that we don't even need, like the ability for the post office to handle the election mail load and the, the change out to the sorting machines. I mean, there's just a shit ton of stuff in there. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's laughable on its face. It was clearly a Hail Mary Democrat wish list that was never, ever, ever, ever going to have a shot. But man, could they print some checks and could they stimulate the economy if it did pass? And if Joe and her team and Joe and his team, now including her, could get that to pass, if they could get enough pressure applied to the Republicans, if they could spin this for long enough, see what happens in January and then get this thing pushed through, especially because a lot of these things that they extended are expiring in December, some of them right after Christmas. So then people for the new year are really going to be hurting, right? So there's going to be a lot of pressure. And if she can just keep waiting, she may get her Hail Mary. And if she gets her Hail Mary, it's going to be a great economy for Joe because the initial response will be a massively stimulated economy, initially. Of course, the long-term ramifications, well, that's not going to be her problem. She'll be retired by then. But a, in the lower decks, 
enough, thankfully, enough of our Congress critters have some humanity that they are trying to stumble together some sort of patchwork $900 billion quasi-stimulus. And let me be clear about this thing. It's a stinker. It has no state and local aid. It only has one additional month in a lot of the plans that help out jobless Americans. One month. It has no additional stimulus checks. It has a rush-together liability shield that looks like it is a gift to corporate America. It has no money for transit, transit agencies that are suffering from all of the additional load of cleaning to keep things safe under COVID. And there's just a ton of other like non-starters in there that the Democrats have always said no to. But you see, they've got Romney on their side. Those involved say, look, they, we realize this isn't perfect. And not everyone's going to be happy. There's going to be some folks probably pretty unhappy with what we've come up with. But they say this is how politics is supposed to work. Uh, folks from both sides of the aisle working together to, you know, have reachable compromises that are good for the entire country. Basically, country over party. This 50-member caucus, 25 Democrats along with 25 Republicans say they have been working day and night over the Thanksgiving holiday to nail out the details and get the framework done on this. It is a $908 billion package designed to expand COVID-19 relief. And uh, that relief is set to expire at the end of this month, December 31st. $228 billion of that is slated to continue the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans. Now, a lot of that money is then designed to help restaurant and hospitality business owners around the country many of whom have been devastated as a result of coronavirus restrictions and quarantines. See, we have no control over the virus coming in and the way it gets spread. We have some, but really not much, obviously, as this, as this uh, last 10 months have humbly demonstrated to us. But we do have control over this stuff, the fiscal stuff, the economy stuff. That's where we do actually have control. But yet nothing's happening. And the reality is, the White House has been unusually flexible on this one. They've actually used phrases like, we're willing to move further to the left. They're willing to compromise here. But the Biden-Schumer-Pelosi wall is just insurmountable. Have you been in touch with the transition team? This is Schumer uh, during an interview outside on the street. In touch with both the transition team and the president-elect on a variety of subjects, but usually I keep them to myself. I guess the only other thing was, have you spoken to Speaker Pelosi? I speak to Speaker Pelosi all the time. This guy is such a dick. I talk to the president, but I don't share those conversations. It's just the way he talks about it. I speak to Pelosi all the time. He's such an elite prick. Okay, thank you, everybody. She agrees with Hero's bill should pass, as does President-elect Biden. And you're confident that you could try and get McConnell on board? Well, we hope to try. I hope he will get on board. I hope he will get on board. I hope he knows that they'll never get on board with that crazy-ass thing. And there really has been just this wall there until today. It, it happened like dominoes during a press conference. Joe Biden said Congress should pass a robust stimulus, robust being cheap, the $900 billion, and then do something further. And after Joe did that, 
Nancy and Schumer, like that, signaled to their, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know the term for these people, but they're the people that's, that uh, release a statement to the media. I'm trying to think of what their, uh, I guess, spokesperson is probably the word, uh, released a statement saying that they are going to start working with this bipartisan small stimulus. Uh, and it sounds like the framing is it's it's let's just get this passed now and then we'll pass the real thing later. Right now, the full Congress should come together and pass a robust package for relief to address these urgent needs. But any package passed in a lame duck session is likely to be at best just a start. My transition team is already working on what I'll put forward in the next Congress to address the multiple crises we're facing, especially our economic and COVID crises. So then I guess that's probably like January because some of this stuff, it's only like a month. So maybe they could punt it to February. Let's keep talking about Biden, though. Uh, Things are moving right along. Trump has begun to signal that he's uh, living with the new reality. From his Virginia golf property, President Trump headed to the seclusion of Camp David today. His election transition becoming defiant acceptance. Just say, certainly I will. Certainly I will. And you know that. Last night, making his first public commitment to move out of the White House after a Biden victory is finalized. Because time isn't on our side. Reality setting in to a point. It's going to be a very hard thing to concede because we know there was massive fraud. Maybe he will do a concession speech. I think he should. As the president played golf today, those unproven election claims suffered another court defeat. Still, he is more outwardly recognizing Biden will succeed him. This is this is bigger than one man. So this is why um, even when you look at all of the weird things that do go on with the voting irregularities that they have been able to draw attention to, it's, it doesn't really matter. It's um, it's been decided. You know, like um, I, it's not really a, it doesn't happen like this, but it's a smoke filled kind of room with a bunch of people smoking cigars. And they've decided, you see, they've decided they've decided in Biden. No, I don't have. They've decided in Biden. No, but you get where I'm trying to go with it, don't you? <laughs> the Biden administration said, oh, that's OK. We'll get rid of America first. No, we don't want to get rid of America first. Don't let Joe Biden take credit for the vaccines. Don't let him take credit. For the vaccines. God, he's, um, sure is Donald Trump. Because the vaccines were me. Today, outside the White House. The vaccines were me. I just love that part. I got to play it again for you. I mean, it's just, he's really insistent that Joe doesn't get the vaccine credit. First, no, we don't want to get rid of America first. Don't let Joe Biden take credit for the vaccines. Don't let him take credit for the vaccines. Because the vaccines were me. They cut him. They just cut, 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 cut so tight. (laughs) And it's, um, you know, people are getting sick and tired of it. I knew it would happen. I think things are actually moving along pretty well. But Gabriel Gabriel Sterling, you may have heard this. He's Georgia's voting system implementation manager. And uh, he is so angry. He has put up with this shit. And he is sick and tired of this vote-doubting shenanigans. Now, just so you know, this guy has been on CNN. He's written opinion pieces. He's not exactly a Trump fan, and he's never really exactly been all that big of a fan of this process. But now, he's just gosh darn had it, and it's time for you all to just grow up. He comes stomping out for his co- stomping out for his press conference. 
Big Huff slams his stuff down. Good afternoon. My name is Gabriel Sterling. I'm the Voting System Implementation Manager for the state of Georgia. And just to give you all a heads up, this is going to be sort of a two-part press conference today. Are you getting the idea that this guy's maybe a little dramatic? At the beginning of this, I'm going to do my best to keep it together. Because it has all gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. You just got to stop. This is going too far. You and all of your silly conspiracies about the election. It just needs to stop. He's an angry dad. And Joe DeVinaja, or whatever his name is, Joe says that uh, this guy should be shot. And this is just so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Okay, well, all right. Okay, all right. Fair enough. That seems pretty bad calling for some guy to get shot. Well, let's see what he really said. He he did. A, he was doing a radio interview on a on a uh, show that got released on YouTube, and I went and grabbed the audio for you. Anybody who thinks that this election went well, like that idiot Krebs, who used to be the head of cyber. Oh, yeah, the guy that was on said, sixty minutes guy, last night. That guy is a class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. All right. I mean, is he calling for violence? A twenty-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Oh... This old reason for the outrage. He's so outraged. He's so angry because of the risk to his subordinates, because the president hasn't condemned this language. Is there no self-responsibility? Is there no allowance for the fact that the world just made up of a bunch of dumb shits that do stupid stuff? The outrage, you know, it seems so genuine. But then you listen to what they're upset about, and it's, it sort of falls apart. This is a process that needs to happen. It's, it, it, is, it is because you have people like that that are representing the process that it evokes such a reaction on the other side. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, my friend. And he goes up there and does like a nine-minute presser where he's yelling at people like an old man dad telling them it needs to stop right now, like they just took the car out for a joyride or something. I mean, or I, I just I can't even fathom it. Can't even. There's been something else that I, I'm feeling like I need to get off my chest with you. There's a third thing this week, and it's it's this globalist damn cabinet pick. These picks that Joe Biden has gone for are a bunch of monsters that are going to wind us up in wars all over again. And it's being wrapped and cloaked in praise about diversity. The media loves Biden's cabinet picks, and they're not talking about their skill set. They're not talking about their qualifications or the fact that they're lifelong elitists who have gone to rich colleges and have lived privileged lives and have been lifelong politicians. No, no, they're just focusing on other aspects of these candidates. 
I don't remember a cabinet or a senior appointments that are this diverse. I, I suspect he may well have one of the most diverse uh, cabinets in the history of this country. The most diverse staff that uh, a transition has ever had. He promised the most diverse cabinet uh, in history. The most diverse ever assembled. And it could be the most diverse ever. Assembling what is essentially the most diverse cabinet in history. President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have the most diverse and competent team a president and a vice president could possibly have. Now, while reflecting different aspects of the people in the administration's office is a good idea, it is a hollow recommendation or um, um, it's a hollow acknowledgement that they're making. They're, They're talking about the diversity, but they're not talking about the people beyond these terms. But the reality is that their actual backgrounds are anything but diverse. They all kind of come from the same school of thought, the same political pools, the same kind of ideology. There's really nothing diverse about them. There's not there's not people from middle America. There's not anybody from the suburbs. There's nobody that's overweight and there's nobody who's maybe from the military. Right. It's just these political elites that are good, trustworthy little stooges that are grateful for their positions and will do what they're told. And it's it's just the absolute wrong thing to be focusing on. It's worth acknowledging, but it shouldn't be the sole focus. We're going to get the latest now on the presidential transition with Joe Biden breaking a new barrier by announcing an all-female White House communications team. Joe Biden this morning is moving on with this transition, including trying to make good on this campaign promise to diversify the White House with that first, the all-female communications team. But is it, though? After Spicy Sean, I'm actually pretty sure that Trump's team was all female, and it has been consistently since Spicy Sean. I'm not sure why there's why does this really matter? After weeks of delay, today President-elect Joe Biden will finally receive his first top-level intelligence briefing, and he's already pushing ahead on his campaign promise to diversify the White House with a first in all-female communications team. Mr. Biden also announced his new White House communications team. It is a diverse all-female group, including several mothers of young kids, according to newly named Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who's an Obama alum. Kate Bedingfield was tapped for White House communications following a similar role in the campaign it's an amazing picture when you look at it all together yeah let's go back to this picture here so you have uh jen pulaski you heard it there um jen pulaski jen pulaski does that name ring a bell you might remember when the unfiltered show was on the air in the past and we were covering the crisis in ukraine jen pulaski was then the state department spokesperson and she was playing deference and uh right up on point for anything regarding the UK crisis and the Ukraine crisis. And I grabbed a little audio from back then for you. And it's so clear in retrospect how we were meddling. The Obama team was meddling in the Ukraine government. And she's there to essentially do damage control while Crimea is falling apart. Here's the Jen. next step here we're very focused on is getting the government uh, of Ukraine together with officials from Russia to have a discussion. The international community, the United States can be a part of that. We're happy to be. But there are those who would see irony in the counter narratives that are going on. Uh, the West seemed to support uh, the protesters for months as they uh, occupied Independence Square. A democratically elected government is chased from office. Now these protesters uh, are able to kind of write their own story. 
And yet now the people in Crimea are saying, well, hey, wait, we want to do the same thing. So how do you square these two narratives? Well, it's not about what the West wants. Uh, Crimea is a part of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is Crimea. Ukraine represents all of the people in Ukraine, including the people in Crimea. Obviously, there's going to be a discussion about where to move forward. Mm, that's our new White House press secretary. She'll be replacing Kaylee, and she is very in line. In fact, a lot of these folks have some connection to what was going on in Ukraine. Isn't that interesting? The people that are going to be involved with Biden, like John Kerry. John Kerry was the Secretary of State during that clip, the time of that clip. It's like the old gang's getting back together. And the news, the media, just couldn't be happier about it. This is ABC's View, and their host, Sonny um, Houston, Houston, um, their host, Sonny, she is, she's so excited about it, and she just comes right out and tells you why. They're good buds with all these people. The media is pals with this new press team, and it's just going to be great. I, I think that um, it points to a return, quite frankly, to... Um a move to a more traditional relationship with the press. I mean, Trump was very effective in um, damaging the reputation of reporters and constantly attacking reporters because he wanted his uh, word to be final. He wanted his supporters to believe only what he said and not what they saw in the news. And, and you know, he really eroded the First Amendment. So I, I'm actually uh, quite pleased that he picked uh, not only women, but these women in particular because they have strong relationships with the press. I mean, remember how Trump used to attack reporters like Abby Phillips, reporters like uh, Yamish uh, Alcindor, April Ryan, Katie Collins. It was a constant attack of women, female reporters predominantly. I mean, he, he did have that back and forth with Jim Acosta. Yeah, it was only only Jim Acosta was the only male reporter that Trump ever had an issue with. And and he's the one that's damaging the First Amendment. It's incredible. It's remarkable, the cognitive dissonance that just comes out of the mouth. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it? Isn't that something? Kaylee McEnany, female. Kelly, Kellyanne Conway, female. What was um? Oh, who replaced Spicy Sean? What was her name? She was a, she was good. She was tough. I'm drawing, I'm drawing a blank on but, uh, the press secretary before uh, Kellyanne, or I mean uh, before Kaylee. Why am I? Why can't I remember her name? I thought she was actually pretty good, and they were. They, they were given positions with a lot of leeway. They were clearly up there, like super prepared. I just thought I thought I was very impressed with both of their work. And she goes on like like Trump never, never argued with any male news reporter, never, never called any of them fake news. It's it's just it's such a fake version of reality that it it, it leaves me sort of stunned. I'm it, just trying to just process what I heard right now and struggling to process it. Because it's so distant from the reality that I know to be true. And of course, then that was ABC. NBC came in with their tough analysis of Biden's new economic team. And of course, they spread it across multiple shows. Kate Snow with you here in New York. We've been watching announcements by uh, President-elect Joe Biden of his some of his economic team. Let's go to Jeff Bennett, who's with the president-elect in Wilmington. Uh, Jeff, the message from the president-elect was help is on the way, uh, trying to paint a picture of an economic team that will be able to, to really help this yeah. economy in, in terms of uh, equality as well and making sure all Americans have a better future. You're right about that, Kate. And these rollouts are. Yeah, you're right about that. Help is on the way is what Joe Biden said. He went up on stage and he said, 
Help is on the way. And I, I for a moment was so furious because it's his political games with Pelosi that have been holding the entire stimulus thing up so that way when he gets in, they can pass the HEROES Act. And last week when he was asked, he said, pass the HEROES Act. That's the solution. So they've been forming this wall. And then he has the nutsack to go up there and say, don't worry for those of you who have been suffering. Help is on the way. Nobody says anything. No, and the media just laps it up. You heard it right there. She just repeats his talking points for them. And, and who's he bringing in? This great diverse team with John Kerry and Janet fucking Yellen. Who is a rich, white, establishment woman. And that's who he's picked for treasure secretary. And then she goes up on stage. And she cloaks herself and wraps herself in the language of the oppressed to fool you. And the media laps it up. We risk missing the obligation to address deeper structural problems, inequality, stagnant wages, racial disparities in pay, job opportunities, housing, food security, and small business lending that deny wealth building to communities of color. Gender disparities that keep women out of the workforce and keep our economy from running at full force. It's a convergence of tragedies. It's a tragedy and a crisis, which they'll use to do whatever the hell they want, but won't actually address the issue. And if you believe that a super old white guy president and this super old white rich lady give a shit or have any kind of understanding or connection or empathy for the position of minorities or those that are poor... Well, then I got a bridge to sell you to nowhere because you are just looking for some solutions that are not real, my friend. I mean, look at this. Look at what they're selling to you. And they're telling you it's all about diversity. When it's really about putting establishment players in who have made this crisis what it is that we now live in for the last 50 years, they have been players in this. And many of them have been in there for, you know, 30 to 40 years, almost 50 years in the case of Joe Biden. And now they're telling you they're going to fix it. <laughs> and the worst part is, is some people believe it. And then the media repeats it. They have these like when Trump would go on there and say something, they would eviscerate him. When Joe Biden's done, they repackage what he said in a clear, more concise way. So that way you get the message. Really carefully choreographed to do a couple of things. One, to signal Joe Biden's priorities, as you just laid out, but also to allow his designees, his nominees, his appointees, to introduce themselves directly to the American people, to really use the force of their personal stories to help blunt partisan attacks. It's, or put another way, they're going to leverage social issues around their identities to deflect partisan attacks. So it's actually a cold, calculated, savvy political move to get ahead of the Republicans. That's what it actually is. And in the meantime, the media, in this case, NBC's NBC News with their special report, is more than happy to just nail those talking points and make sure you get them. Listen to the beginning of this clip again. Kate Snow with you here in New York. We've been watching announcements by uh, President-elect Joe Biden of his some of his economic team. Let's go to Jeff Bennett, who's with the president-elect in Wilmington. She could have stopped right there, 
She's just doing the introduction of the guy. But instead, uh, Jeff, the message from the president elect was help is on the way, uh, trying to paint a picture of an economic team that will be able to to really help this yeah. economy in, in terms of uh, equality as well and making sure all Americans have a better future, says the rich news actor to the other rich news actor. You're right about that, Kate. And these roles. Yeah, Kate, you're totally right about that. You're totally right about that. And I, I would help is on the way. I was so enraged. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. You know, maybe it's because I've seen it happen. I've seen, I've had family members die. I've had multiple family members lose their lifelong businesses. They're just, they were, both of them were just within spitting distance of retiring. One of them has medical issues, probably gives him five years left of life. And he was gearing up to spend those last five years retired and enjoying them and taken from him just at the last moment because fuck him, right? He's in the hospitality industry. So that's gone now. But, you know, it helps on the way. So that's good. You can tell that to my dead uncle and my devastated family members. Appreciate that. I just, I, I, the lockdowns, I just can't, I can't, I can't make it work in my head anymore. If you're advocating for lockdowns, you're complicit in tearing families apart. You're complicit in inflicting suffering. You're complicit in making the poorest and most vulnerable in our societies even in deeper into further grinding poverty. And in some cases, you're complicit for driving people to harm themselves. The lockdowns work for those who are privileged enough to be able to work from home easily. They make enough money where they can afford to buy some food, delivery food. You know, if you're in that category, you're not really impacted negatively by the lockdowns. I mean, that's kind of the category I'm in. I, I probably eat more Uber Eats than I should. And I just go from the RV to the studio. That's what I do. And I've pretty much just been doing a form of that lockdown since they started. I don't want to get it. I, uh, I should probably be healthier. And I don't, well, mainly I just don't have health insurance. But I still just, I have elected to do that. And I have to believe there could have been a public policy where we informed people about what to do, how to be healthy, and how to protect the vulnerable. It could have, it could have just been a three-phased approach like that what to do, how to stay healthy, and how to protect the vulnerable. Three-stage approach. These lockdowns have been a crutch. And it's hard to see it because you just see more and more getting rolled out. And it's almost like once Biden won, a switch was flipped, and it was like, all right, we're sticking with the lockdown path. But there's just more and more science that suggests it's just not that effective, and it just delays. And I worry now that the idea is, well, with the, with the vaccine just around the corner, we can use that as an incentive to get people to take the vaccine. But it, it never had to get to this point to begin with. <sighs> like I said, I didn't think you're going to want to hear this. I'm sorry, but it's just been doing the math for months now. And I think if we were going to do the lockdowns, we would have had to do them differently. And I think it still would have had to have a component of public health. Because if you are reasonably healthy, you got a really good shot of beating this thing. And that could have been our first line of defense. 
Instead, like we always do, we let the worst things continue, like people eating horribly, and we let us we just filled up the hospitals with nurses that can't get tested and don't have enough gear. It's just, just so stupid. It's all would have been avoidable. But I'm sure it's all Trump's fault. Well, but no worries about that. It seems like he's on his way out. Even now his good buddy General Barr or General <laughs> Attorney Barr. General Barr is kind of great though. <laughs> uh he found no fraud. And you know, I've never really gone down this route, but I feel like Barr got a bad rap. He got he got labeled as a Trump apologist because he did things that were obviously just the right thing to do if you weren't a Russiagate monster and then got labeled as a Trump loyalist. And uh, this clip, which is from Al Jazeera, uh, really leans into it. And I thought, what a great chance to kind of break it down. William Barr got the job as America's top law enforcement officer because he was loyal to Donald Trump. Check one box right there. That's always the go-to line. Now the president might be questioning that loyalty. Just hours before a routine meeting at the White House. Well, wait a minute now. If he's loyal to the president, then why is he doing the most disloyal thing possible, saying no election fraud? The U.S. Attorney General told the Associated Press he couldn't back up the president's claims of widespread voter fraud in 2020. It sounds like he's evidence-driven. Saying, we've not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. Maybe he's been listening to Unfilter. There's some fraud out there. There's some fraud out there. It's not going to change the results. William Barr became Attorney General after Jeff Sessions was sacked. Donald Trump didn't think he was loyal enough during the early days of the investigation into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. Or, or, that's just your opinion, and Russiagate turned out to be a hoax that has clear ties all the way back to Hillary Clinton and a phony dossier that had some really outlandish crap in it that they knew was fake, but it was then used for political snooping and investigations and that Trump knew it was all shit because he knew he wasn't doing anything with Russia all along. And so when his boy Jeff didn't do enough, he fucking fired him because he knew it was a hoax because it was a hoax. It did turn out to be a hoax. And we now know that because the investigations have completed with no findings. So not really this this is like the narratives just don't hold up in, in analysis. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty and all that. But I mean, look at what look at how this gets spun here. The early days of the investigation into alleged Russian interference in the twenty sixteen election. The problem was is that Jeff Sessions had recused himself for bullshit reasons, according to Trump, and he could have been more effective in tidying this thing up. Since he took over, Barr has often been accused of acting more as Trump's top lawyer rather than America's. His Department of Justice got involved in cases involving Trump allies. It dropped charges against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, even though he admitted lying to FBI agents. Yes, but then after he admitted to lying, an FBI agent admitted to entrapping him. And Comey admitted that they went to his office to get him on something. And when that came out, guess what? <laughs> yeah, Barr took action. And it intervened in the sentencing of close Trump ally Roger Stone. Well, that also, again, like this, this, so this was about, this was about Stone being tied to Guccifer, who is supposedly the Russian link to WikiLeaks, which was never proven. Attorney General Barr also announced the findings of the Mueller probe into Russia interference. 
but was accused of misrepresenting the final results to make his boss look better. Investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. I am sure that all Americans share my concern about the efforts of the Russian government to interfere in our presidential election. It was the results of Russia. The, 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 the report clearly said what he's, he was reading the report there. He was those, some of those lines were just from the report. Uh, he just was the attorney general. I mean, I mean, like just the way it gets spun, it just seems ridiculous because um, those things all seem actually kind of justifiable to me. And then Barr's present actions, which are going directly against what Donald Trump would wish would seem to also be a data point that he's just following the evidence. <laughs> so what happens next in the election, right? Because if you're like me right now, it's 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 mind-numbing, all the things that are moving, all the moving pieces. But uh, Spicy Sean actually has a TV show now, and he got super caffeinated, and he comes on, and he gives you kind of a good lineup of what to expect over the next few weeks. On December 8th, just over a week from now, all state election disputes, including court challenges, recounts, must be resolved. Then the electors, as you mentioned, meet on the 14th of December. Then fast forward to January 6th, the electors' votes are actually counted by the new Congress that have just been sworn in. Yeah, that's a very important day, Sean. And it's important for many reasons. It has been attempted before by Democrats in 2017 when Hillary Clinton lost to Trump towards the end of the count. Congressman Maxine Waters pleaded for a senator to join her in objection to these counts. She asked, is there any United States senator who will join me in this letter of objection? Yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up, Lindsay, because for most people that they sort of say, okay, well, that's the end of the process. But what you're talking about is this act in the Constitution that lays out how electors cast their ballots and makes it clear that there's a process by which the House and the Senate can actually object to the role of the, of the electors being called and counted. And so 2017, that did happen. Yeah, exactly. It was also attempted in 2001 when Al Gore lost to George Bush and former Congressman Jesse Jackson also couldn't get a senator to sign on. Uh, no one would do it. So you had a couple scenarios there where no one, uh, no senator would join into the fight there. Yeah, it's interesting because the process is such that it requires the, a House member in the in the House of Representatives and a senator in the yeah. Senate to basically agree and come together and object. Then each of the chambers go back and debate for up to two hours each of those objections that has to be made in writing, what the problem was. The Constitution, though, is pretty mum on what happens from there. But there's a vote that occurs if those if the House member and the senator cite an irregularity in writing and it goes from there. I mean, that's kind of the, the big thing. And in 2004, actually, yeah, we don't need to keep going. We don't need your story. In 2004, Spicy was invi involved with a situation like that, and he wants you to know about it. But the situation sim simply is there's a constitutional process that is still playing out, and uh, we are now entering into those final stages, um, assuming Joe can make it. You know, he did hurt his foot after all. President-elect Biden showed off his new boot today. Hold your foot! Good. He gave a thumbs up before limping away. Biden's fractured foot, which he injured while playing tug-of-war with his German Shepherd Major, has quickly become the butt of late-night jokes. Biden is now going to have to wear an orthopedic boot for a few weeks. So in a way, Trump and Biden both got the boot this month. Nobody wants to start a new job in a walking boot. 
It's hard to act tough with China when you have to leave a press conference in one of those knee scooters. <laughs> now, if you believe that he broke his foot playing with his dog, I've, I still like you get in touch with me about that bridge. Um, I'd also like to get in touch with me just in general. Go to unfilter.show slash contact and go to unfilter.show slash discord for the live chat with various rooms and whatnot in there. My current intention is to take next week off. So heads up. I probably, as you can tell by the tone of this episode, needed to take this week or maybe even last week off. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, you could tell I'm getting in a mood and um, shows a lot of work, too. So sometimes, you know, you do all this work and you see all this idiocy and it just it really gets to me sometimes. So I, I think probably a, a day off or a, a week off because it's so hard not to collect clips, though. I have to tell you, when I see something going down. And that's sort of one of my promises. If something really major happens, I'll probably break in. Either live or I'll release an episode for you. I can't help it. Can't help it. But my intention is to try to take it slow and get caught up on some business stuff. Now that Jupiter Broadcasting is independent again, there's a ton of work that needs to be done. A ton of work. And, well, I could use an extra couple of days in the schedule right now to get some of that work done. So I'm going to try to do that next week. But I will be back, if as planned, after that. But just get subscribed at unfilter.show slash subscribe, and then you get it whenever I come out. And if you think somebody out there might enjoy this show, consider sharing it with them. And if you want to support my work and keep the show going, I could use that support at patreon.com slash unfilter. Thanks for being here. See you in two weeks. because I want to win.